Well, it's, it's good to be here. Um, this is Lord Howe Island. It's one of my favourite spots in the entire world, and that has got to be one of my ultimate experiences right there. The beach in front, the grass behind, a good book in my hand, relaxing, and if it gets too hot, just jump in the water, have a bit of a dip, come back, read the book again. Yes, that's a pre-kids shot. Um, <laughs> because that was at our last holiday about six years earlier. But look, you know, I also, as I said earlier, I really love this place. This is the view outside uh, my backyard in Robertson, and this is one of the reasons I came here. I love the countryside. I love the green. I love the soft light. Um, I don't live here through winter, so that, that helps as well. Um, but really, this for me is another great, awesome experience that I love going for. But I also know that not everyone is into relaxation like I am. Some people want adventures by day not a party at night, and they're the kind of people who will sleep when they must. <laughs> whatever, whatever it happens to be, um, next slide please, whatever it happens to be, there is a, a thread that goes through the experiences that we long for. Um, and the thread for today is Solomon, who wrote Ecclesiastes, says that they're all meaningless. Now, I actually teach Ecclesiastes to year five, and whenever we talk about the idea of meaningless, there's this huge reaction. What do you think? It's, it's meaningless. I can find meaning from it. In fact, um, you know, because Ecclesiastes begins with everything is meaningless, well, if everything's meaningless, then God is meaningless. Take that, Mr. Brigden. And um, so you know, we react and we, we say, no, this is not right that everything is meaningless. But there needs to be... Let me just give a little bit of background. Solomon son of King David, he was the wisest king um, Israel ever had. He um, was the wealthiest king Israel ever had. He was the most successful king Israel ever had, but he was not the greatest king that Israel ever had. And because he was known for his wisdom, he wrote uh, a thousand proverbs, we're told in the records about him, um, he was well qualified to write here. And in Ecclesiastes, he put 12 chapters together where he seamlessly alternated between observing the world that we live in and then giving us great advice on the best we can do in the world that we live in. And he is the last person that you would think would be negative about experience. But he is, nonetheless. Take a look with me at, at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. He makes his position very clear from the beginning. Chapter 2, verse 1. I thought in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. That word is repeated throughout Ecclesiastes 37 times in 12 chapters, um, along with the other phrase that goes with it, a chasing after the wind. So he's, really, he's not being subtle here. At all. Laughter, I said, verse 2, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men, and I take it also women, to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. And then he goes on and explains from verses 4 to 9 what he does to test pleasure. Um, and look, he does huge stuff. 
He undertook great projects, we hear in verse 4, and he actually did. He built the temple. That took him seven years. That was the most important building in Israel's history. And he built his palace, which he thought was more important than the temple because he took 13 years to build that one. He made gardens, parks, orchards, dams, etc., verses 5 and 6. He bought and owned slaves. Now, that doesn't mean that slavery is a good thing, nor does it mean that the Bible is endorsing slavery. But for his readers who hear that he bought and owned them and they were born in his household, that shows that he has experience in leadership and experience in management. He's quite a dude. He owned more flocks and herds than anyone before him. Um, Yes, that's true. He amassed silver and gold. You bet he did. His annual income in gold was 666 talents, which is 22.7 tonnes that he's bringing in each and every year. He didn't really know what to do with all that gold. So instead of putting it in a vault like the Bank of England does, he made shields with it. 200 big ones, 300 small ones, and he decorated his house with them. Um, to me, that's like you know taking $100 bills and wallpapering. Um, and about as smart, because in his son's time, when invaders came, they took the shields. If they'd been in a vault, they might have had to work harder. Um, he was wise, but he wasn't always smart. I think there's possibly a difference. He shows there's a difference. He acquired men and women singers. Only the wealthy could afford entertainment back then. And a harem. Yep, that's one way to describe it. 700 wives. 300 concubines. When we talk about that at school, it's 300 extra girlfriends. It saves a lot of expl explanations. Um, and he, so he, look, he did everything that a man of his time could possibly do. You know, we, we talk about making the most of life, sucking the marrow out of life. Solomon did it. In fact, he really summed it up in verse 10 of chapter 2. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work and this was the reward for all my labour. In other words, I did it all. But what does he say was the conclusion? Chapter 2 verse 11, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, Everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Now why does he say that? Why is our experience meaningless? We can't say he hasn't experienced enough yet. He's experienced as much as he could possibly experience. We aren't told in this passage, but it's part of the wider problem of Ecclesiastes, which... He says from the very beginning, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, that's Solomon, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And throughout the rest of the book, we start to see why. He gives loads and loads of reasons. I'm just going to focus on four. The one, one reason that everything is meaningless, including experience, is because someone else gets to experience your work. And this is his argument, Ecclesiastes 2.21. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge and skill. And then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. That is the cry of the rich man, isn't it? I've worked for all of this. I've got it all together. You may not have got to hand it over to someone. He hasn't done a thing for it. 
We might not be as wealthy as him, but I think if we had the choice of working hard and enjoying the fruits of our labour forever, or working hard and then right at the point where we can truly enjoy it, handing it over to someone else, I reckon we take the former. That's the first problem. Second problem is injustice continues to rage. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 8.14, he says, There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve and wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. We don't have to look very far to see the truth of that, do we? You know, we have as a government, as a country, decided that anyone who is a refugee needs to go in some offshore detention centre where we lock them up for an indeterminate amount of time um, till we can decide whether they can come here or not. If they come the wrong way, we promise they can never come here and we just lock them up and watch them go mad. That's a very definite injustice we're doing right now. Now, one of his big problems is that injustice continues to rage. His third problem is even more pointed. The best we can hope for is not enough. So he doesn't just observe the world. Solomon also gives us advice on the best we can do, and he's got four or five different things to say. This one is representative of the kind of advice that he gives throughout the book. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 7 to 9. Go, eat your food with gladness, and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it is now that God favours what you do. Always be clothed in white, and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All your meaningless days, for this is your lot in life, and your toilsome labour under the sun. Is that the best we can do? Enjoy life as best we can. Keep ourselves pure. That's clothed in white. Um, and, uh, anoint your head with oil. Be joyful and glad. That's really what the image is trying to get through there. Is that the best we can do? His other advice doesn't go much further. You know, fear God. Yeah, fair enough. Um, don't be too quick to speak. Yep, well, aren't we always being told that? Um, be quick to listen and keep your vows. But in the end, this is the best life has to offer. Eat your food, be joyful, make the most of the life that you've got because it ain't going to get any better than this. And that brings us to the biggest problem of all. Death comes to all. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, Solomon says, All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good man, so it is with the sinner. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil and there is madness in their heart while they live. And afterward they join the dead. For Solomon, that's the problem that trumps all the other problems, that puts all the other problems in perspective. Death changes everything. It limits so much. 
Um, every school I've worked at has their point of spin because I've always worked in the private system. My current school is no different and one of their points of spin is that our school apparently helps our, our kids uh, realise potential, passions and purpose. And look, I, I try my best. But <laughs> in the end, if we look at death, it limits our potential. It limits our potential to this life. And if that's what's in mind, then it sucks our passion dry. Because who wants to work with passion for something when you're just going to work and work and then die? And it removes our purpose. It destroys it completely. Because our purpose with death in the world is that we're born, we grow up, we work, we make the most of the work that we can, and then we die. And that's the negativity that is flowing throughout Ecclesiastes. This is why Solomon says it's all meaningless. Because death changes everything. And limits us completely. Sol I think Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes to leave us wanting more. To leave us thinking, is this all there is? There's all this stuff in the world. Can't we do better than this? And yes, we can. But Solomon didn't get to see that. This is where Jesus changes everything. Because his death and resurrection meant that our death was not the end. Between 1996 and 2000, I lost four relatives in pretty quick succession. Started off with my maternal grandmother, then my paternal grand grandmother uh, in 97. Then two and a half years later, my paternal grandfather in 2000. Six weeks later, my mother. 2000 was not a great year. Um, but I got to see funerals in quick succession. And my relatives had differing relationships with Jesus. But my mother's funeral was the best because she had come to a very clear understanding of the gospel, had come to a very clear understanding that Jesus' death and resurrection meant that her death was not the end and that now she had died, she was safe with Jesus. With death no longer being the end, we simply die once and then face judgment with God, as we're told in Hebrews, and we don't need to fear that judgment if we are trusting in Jesus, then that changes everything. It restores our purpose back to what it was in the beginning when we were first created. The Apostle Peter understood this completely when he talks about the change. He says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live out the rest of his life, earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. That was the reason we were created in the first place, to have a relationship with God and to do the work that he has set out for us. We now live life with purpose, a purpose that is greater than ourselves. That means that 
work isn't pointless and life isn't pointless. And because of that, our passion is renewed. We are not simply toiling and toiling away for the sake of it, knowing that one day we will die. No, we are working for the glory of God in whatever work that we've been given. Um, Martin Luther, uh, there's a famous story told of Martin Luther of a shoemaker, a cobbler, going up to him and saying, how can a cobbler glorify God? And he looked at the cobbler and he said, how can a cobbler glorify God? By making good shoes and selling them at a fair price. We have a greater purpose now that death is not the end. What's more, we are not simply working for this life, we are working for eternity and preparing ourselves for that great day. Not only that, but the barrier to our potential is smashed. Our life no longer is simply limited to this life and the potential that we can achieve now, but the potential we can achieve for eternity. But, most importantly, for the sake of experience, we are being offered through Jesus an experience that is far greater and richer than the best that life here on earth has to offer. You know, if we look at what we are actually offered, we are offered with eternity, with life with God forever, something amazing. I'll get to that in a sec. A friend of mine who I went to church with 10 years ago once said, I don't think I want to go to heaven. Who doesn't want to go to heaven? Why don't you want to go to heaven? I don't like choirs. And you know, heaven, it's all these, it's all these people standing around with the angels singing all day long. Who wants to sing all day? He didn't like choirs, so heaven was not his thing. But this means that, look, if you have to do a little bit of choir singing, who cares? Look at this. And I heard uh, Revelation 21, verses 3 to 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. I think that changes everything. Uh, we had a lovely holiday in Lord Howe Island at the beginning of these holidays. Um, but Vicky got a repetitive strain injury out of it because my daughter um, would only be with her mother. And um, yeah, that meant my arms were fine, but... Carry me, carry me. Not only that, but our first two days um, were basically spent with Natasha crying because we had to go to a wedding the, time, the, the, the night before. Um, we left an hour past their bedtime. We thought, they'll sleep on the Blue Mountains coming down. No. They, they progressively got more tired and both fell asleep 20 minutes before home. So two and a half hours past their bedtime. And then we got up early to catch the plane the next day and we couldn't get into the hotel room until two o'clock. So Natasha was pretty cactus. Lots of crying, a little bit of mourning, serious pain for Vicky and I as we're trying to deal with, with this. Can you imagine a world where there is no more crying or mourning or tears or pain? To be honest with you, I struggle to imagine a world without those things. 
I can imagine without a time where you'll have little of it, but to have none of it, that I think is amazing. I'll put up with a bit of choir singing for that. I imagine it won't be painful. That is an experience by itself that I think must surely be richer. But check out the next image that we're given in Revelation. The new heavens and the new earth. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Again, Vicky and I have a friend who may not like that image because she has this, probably one of the strangest phobias I've ever come across. She has a genuine fear, phobia of fruit. <laughs> not kidding. Can't stand it. We, we, we remember not to do fruit salad when we had them over because, and she's taught her kids not really to eat fruit. Now, her youngest child, uh, who's only, you know, uh, only a baby, he's just turned one, I think, um, he loves fruit. Particularly, he loves mango, watermelon, the stuff that you can... And you, there's, there are images on Facebook of this child covered, head to toe smeared with mango. Can you imagine having a mother like that who doesn't just dislike cleaning up that stuff, because who does, but really can't stand the smell, sights, that's not an image that really would make her go, yeah, I want to go to heaven. Look, 12 crops of fruit, one every month. Who wants to go? But the details in Revelation aren't really the point. The image that it's trying to project across is the point. When Adam and Eve sinned on our behalf and we were removed from access to the tree of life and the river of life, death came into the world. Here you have complete free and easy access. Not only that, but it's available in abundance. It's a wonderful image of eternal life, but it is also a wonderful image of the fact that there will be no hunger. There will be no thirst. Because, you know, you don't just have a crop once a year and make sure you save up. You have a crop once a month. Just pick it off the tree. There's always going to be something ripe. Enjoy. The experience of abundance, of stability that comes with that is overwhelming. I might never get to skydive, but I'll definitely be able to enjoy the stability and abundance and therefore the free and easy living that comes with that. But there's another image that's even more amazing. This one comes from Isaiah and again it's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. All of Isaiah 65 from verse 11, or verse 13, I think it is, is worth reading through to the end of the chapter. I've just picked two verses because otherwise we'd be here all day. Never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. That's right, Joan, you're a mere youth in heaven. And he who fails to, re to reach a hundred will be considered a curse. In other words, it just isn't going to happen. The wolf and the lamb will feed together and the lion will eat straw like the ox, but dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain. 
I've got young kids, you know that. You guys have been through the same thing. You know what it's like to have young kids. The aim is to stop them from harming and destroying. But in heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, with eternal life with God, there will be no harming, there will be no destroying, and mortal enemies will be able to sit down together. Can you imagine a world where it's like that all the time? It's like a camp that's running really well, but the camp runs forever. And you're not tired of it. But then you come back to reality, and everyone usually has a temper tantrum on the way home or at home because you're just so tired from trying to be good all week. This is, here is a world where there is no enmity, there is no fighting, there is no harm. That is a richer experience than anything that Solomon went through. We are being offered something huge here. Why would we give it up? When I went through those experiences at the beginning, I think those experiences really come down to something that we all long for, and that is we all long to be carefree. We are not promised that in this life. The only time that the Bible refers to us being carefree is in Psalm 73, verse 12, when he says, this is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. And in the New Testament, the one person that pursued the carefree life was the prodigal son. Well, how did he end up? Feeding pigs and going hungry. No, the carefree life that we all long for, the carefree experience we all long for, is in heaven. And if we are not trusting Jesus, that experience will be denied us because we will have to face our own sins. I encourage you, if you have not grasped heaven, do it today. Talk to Graham, talk to Michelle. Happy to chat with you myself. If you're thinking, oh, this was getting a bit hard, Today's the day that I need to get back on track. Yeah, because this is what you're missing out on. And on that note, let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we are not limited to eating and drinking and making the most of this life, but that we have a greater purpose that fills us with a greater passion and has huge potential Thank you that because of Christ we can look forward to eternal life in heaven with you. Help us to remain focused on that day and fixed on serving you until that day comes. Amen. Did you want questions or not? I'm not fussed. No, it's good. I got respect.